and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again, and this podcast is brought to you, among others, by Native Shark, which is an online platform for learning Japanese. And what Native Shark do is they make learning Japanese really, really simple. So you just show up, you click a button that says study now, and the platform will then show you exactly what you need to learn next. Now, this may sound simple, and in practice, it is simple. But the way it's designed means that students who use Native Shark once a day for four to five months can complete the equivalent of over two years of university study. And what they also are unique in is that they teach all of the types of Japanese that you wouldn't normally get in traditional schools or textbooks, too. And if you ever studied with one of the more common textbooks that foreigners usually pick up, you've probably noticed that there are a whole lot of sentences or conversation samples in there. That you've never really heard or never really hear in real life, and vice versa. Some of the stuff that you actually hear when you're out and about in Japan is never really covered in these traditional textbooks. So, Shark, it's very well grounded in everyday spoken Japanese, whether it's casual or formal language. And you can really expect,、uh, like one of the students wrote in their review, you can really expect to be picking up the sort of little nuances that no one would ever expect a non native speaker to use and understand. Which is pretty rare for most courses out there. So, yeah, really useful、uh, little platform. And since you've heard about it here on the podcast, you also get an extra little bonus. If you sign up using the URL nativeshark.com forward slash NTI, we'll link to it in this episode's h o w notes. That's native without an E, so N A T I V shark, all one word, dot com forward slash NTI. Use that link to sign up and you'll get a double length free trial. So, two weeks free instead of the one. And you can sign up for that free trial without having to put in your credit card, anything of that sort. So, definitely worth giving it a shot. Okay, so for today's episode, this is a conversation that we've had with a new client back in April, so a couple of months ago,、um, as of the recording of this episode. And he's in a position that many of our listeners and new customers are in as well. He only wants to test the waters as far as investing in Japan goes. So, he wants to invest the very minimum possible. While still generating a reasonable return on investment or yield and still be、uh, hands off or passive, so no、uh, little houses in the countryside, then you can pick up for a buck and turn into a guest house, just a normal condo unit. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've probably heard me say on more than a few occasions that you can actually buy a relatively high yielding Japanese property, a condo unit again, for as little as 20 or 30,000 US dollars, so two or three million Japanese yen. Well, in this episode, we dig into and break down these types of、uh, super affordable investments. Obviously, they're not going to be central Tokyo or Osaka properties, but where exactly and what exactly are they? So, have a listen as we discuss investing in Japan on a budget or testing the water before going all in. Enjoy the conversation, and I shall see you again on the other side. All right, go for it. So, I, I've read your email again. You're looking at、uh, first time investments, something around the $20,000 to $30,000 mark. Yeah. Yep. And I saw that、um, Pretty Our Marketing Lady sent you some samples.、Um, as you could probably tell just because of the budget, they're not going to be in very big central cities.、Mm-hmm. So, cash flow would be probably better than central cities, but you're not going to have huge capital growth potential in those locations. Yeah. So, I, was, I, I noticed they were all in、um, Kumamoto. I don't know how that. I did a little research and I saw 
the past few years, I mean, its population has been good until recently. It's only had a slight decline, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on, like, those types, these types of cities um, in the future with population growth or not. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a medium-sized city. Uh, I think last I checked was about 750,000 or so. And like you said, it has been growing till about 2020, I think, probably coincided with when COVID hit for the first time, when the population stopped growing. Um, but I'm, I'm actually wondering, where did you, because I've been waiting for the population census for 2020, which is only going to come out later this year. So when, where did you actually see the, the current numbers? I don't recall exactly. I, it might have been just a preliminary thing. I, I was wasn't from any um, official source, so I don't know how accurate it was, but that's just what I... Because what we've got is um, the last census was released in uh, 2015. They usually do it once every five years. And, yeah, what so we, and what we've seen there is that numbers have actually been rising fine. And whether that sort of coincides with the fact that the, um, the place is a regional commerce center. So it's the uh, biggest city in southern Kyushu. And um, while they're mainly, I mean, they're, they're a bit more old school. Like if you compare it to Fukuoka up north, it's an older population and it's more agricultural and manufacturer oriented. Um, but they've also got a very big solar farm in the vicinity and quite a few smaller ones scattered around there as well, which have been drawing business there too. Um, so of the smaller cities where we could get properties at that budget, this was one of our favorites. Our customers have been very active there. And we've also got a very good property manager there who is very well uh, positioned. He's an ex-social worker and he places um, elderly and other sort of welfare recipients uh, very quickly and efficiently whenever we've got a vacancy. So we never had a vacancy there that's been longer than a month or two. Okay, that's good. Um, so that was another, yeah, go oh, for I was say another question related to the tenants. I don't know what kind of information on the apartments do you have. Do you have any information, like when you uh, do the dil uh, due diligence on the current tenant, like how long they've been there, like age or anything, just to get an idea of you know yes, of course how long they how long they may end up being there, you know, just to kind of prepare yourself. Yes, we always have this information. We're not always going to have it before we make an offer because often the sellers and their agents are not going to be too keen on uh, just divulging info to anybody who makes inquiries. Yeah, yeah. But once we submit an offer and we always write on the offers that they're pending due diligence, which means we want to know the uh, building's renovation history, the reserve fund pool status, and the tenant information. And then we'd be getting all of that, and then we'd be either green lighting or recommending not to go ahead, or we might say, well, you know, it's a good deal, but there's a bit of a risk factor there, so we maybe should come in with a counter offer that's a little bit lower now that we have the due diligence info. Mm -hmm. um, so case by case, we make recommendations, but it's obviously your choice. All right, yeah, I, I mean, you don't want to get someone who's, well... Not necessarily, but someone, you know, if you look and they're 90-something years old, you wonder, like, okay, well, how long? You just, you know. Yeah, 90-something, we haven't had too many, but to be perfectly honest, you will occasionally have uh, tenants in their late 60s up to mid-70s kind of thing. thing. Um, yeah. Japan being Japan, that's about half the population here, right? Yeah. <laughs> All 
Um, and especially, so I mean, the, the smaller and older the building is, the more, the higher the chances are you're going to have a, uh, either a very low income sort of, uh, you know, single moms, shift workers, convenience store workers, um, or uh, elderly destitute tenants. There's really no way around that with these lower budgets. Um, whereas yeah. if you buy something a little bit newer, a little bit bigger, and uh, maybe potentially a different location, then you would get young professionals, you would get people just starting their um, sort of climb on the corporate ladder, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, th there are advantages and disadvantages to both. The older tenants, say you've got a tenant, uh, let's say ideally, let's say you've got a single lady in her 50s. Um, she's not going to be getting married anytime soon. She's going to, Japan being Japan, she's probably not going to be promoted or relocated to a different job. And you've probably got a tenant for life. And the single uh, female takes care of the property a lot better than a single male. Um, whereas if you get a young professional type, then the vacancies tend to be, uh, the occupancy tends to be shorter because their life circumstance changes. They get promoted, they move away, they get married, that sort of thing. So you do have more turnover and um, overall more vacancies because you got two months and then after two or three years another two months and so forth which also yeah. translates into more renovations and repairs so I mean there's advantages and disadvantages to both um, the main downside with the elderly tenants is if they die in the property which can happen sometimes yeah that's what I'd be most concerned with yeah so you've got to rent uh, uh, one of the clauses that we get, and we get them for all tenants regardless of age because we have had cases where this happened with a tenant in their late 40s as well. So we get, um, unless you instruct us not to, we'll be getting uh, landlord coverage for these cases for a death in the property. Okay. And that costs you, so far it's been about 30, 35 bucks a year. Um, I'm guessing as the population will get older, it'll probably go more towards 40, 50 bucks a year. Is that in your um, in the Excel documents? Is that it's included in, in the, the insurance uh, number? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the monthly insurance, we can only estimate it because uh, we only get the uh, accurate estimate closer to settlement. But it's it's based on a rough estimate of what we normally pay for this, mm -hmm. and that covers you for up to a million yen in renovation, repair, and removal costs. So that's about ten thousand bucks for that which usually covers all of the expenses for these smaller units. Mm -hmm. And then it also, most, more importantly, it also covers you for two years of uh, non-existent or reduced rents. So you'll be getting uh, the full rent that that tenant was paying for two years after they passed away. Okay. And then at the end or towards the end of that period, say six months before that compensation period ends, we'll start looking at... Um, do we need to advertise the property at a slightly lower rent or do we need to offer some other incentive to potential tenants and then start working towards repopulating it when that period ends? But for those two years, we're very happy to just keep it vacant and just keep collecting the compensation. There's less wear and tear as well. Yeah. Um, so, and with the reserve fund, um, I'm sure you guys know what would be an acceptable amount in there. So would, would they get send that number you can kind of tell me if that's if you think that's a reasonable amount in there before you know we put in an offer or anything correct so what we like to see normally is um 
obviously depends on the age of the building, but in your case, you're going to be looking at older buildings, so probably 1990 plus. Um, so what we like to see is um, the last 10 years of renovations, we want to see that the big ticket items have been done. And that usually equates to the exterior and to the roof. Um, if the building is um, over five floors, there might be, uh, there would be elevators in there. So if there's elevators, if there's lifts, we would like to see that the lifts have been done, although that's something that gets done every 20 years or so. So not super, super important. And if those uh, two or three items were done, then it's okay for the reserve fund pool to be depleted because it means that they're using it for good purposes and there are not going to be any surprises uh, within the next five or six years. If one of those items or two of those items haven't been done yet, so we'd like to see, we'd like to see the reserve fund pool has enough funds to cover for that. So that would normally mean for us... Um, if we add up the total and divide it between the number of units and then we divide it by the purchase price, approximate purchase price per unit uh, based on what we bought yours for or what we're going to buy yours for, we'd like to see if there haven't been major ticket items done. Um, if nothing was done, we like to see about a third of the property value per owner covered in the reserve fund pool. If there was one item done, uh, half of that, so 15 16%. And that gives us confidence that... Um, if and when those renovations are required, building fees might go up slightly, but not super high. Okay. Because they would have enough money to cover one or two big renovations. Um, in some cases, it depends on the um, depends on the developer as well. Some of the uh, bigger development brands, um, like uh, Dynacourt or Le um, I forget the name, Lions Mansion, and so forth, they have a policy of minimizing building fees to owners and then whenever something big needs to be done they take out a loan on behalf of the uh, owners co-op and so if we know that it's a big and respected uh, developer and building management company that can also be an option but we'll run that by you again it's part of uh, it's part of the due diligence and you'll be uh, the one making the final call based on whatever we think uh, from our experience is the risk factor all right so just um out of curiosity how these, uh, who manages these buildings? I mean, it's not like an owner's association, I would imagine. It is. Like, does someone... Oh, so does... Oh, yes. Okay. There's always an owner's association um, because each each or at least one or two of the units might be owned by a single person, but most of them would be owned by different, completely different people. So they um, nominate uh, a head of the uh, owner's co-op, which changes every, supposed to be every year. Some of them keep it for every two or three years. And then they, most of them would be hiring a management company to take care of the building and do inspections once a year or once every two years, uh, provide renovation uh, plans, renovation estimates, tell them what's happening. Depending on the size of the building, that management company might come with an on-site manager, either as a full-time job or they come in two or three times a week. Um, okay. Gardening, maintenance, uh, you know, lights and the water leaks in the common areas, the, the parking area, the rubbish collection area, that sort of thing is all handled by the management company. And they also handle the collection of the uh, reserve fund contributions every month. And then some of the smaller buildings might be self-managed. So in that case, they might um, be collecting lower fees or not be collecting uh, reserve funds at all. And then whenever something needs to be done, they get an estimate and every owner puts out a certain amount of cash for towards that renovation or repair. 
Um, that raises the uncertainty factor for us. So unless the deal is very compelling, we'd probably steer away from these. Um, we like to see a, a proper professional management company in place, and we like to see the record of what they've done at least in the past decade, if possible. Okay. Um, that's the way it usually works. And the other side of it is the property manager. That's the one that we appoint who handles the tenancy. So I, I think I, when I was reading your um, uh, the PDF, I forget what it was. The explanation of services. Yes. Um, I think it's the, the management companies um, during an occupancy, they don't charge. During a vacancy, uh, they don't charge. Yeah, that's right. So is that, is that just standard pretty much for all of them or is just ones you work with? What they charge is pretty standard or at least, I mean, it's the average and the, uh, the norm. If somebody charges a little bit less or a little bit more, we let you know beforehand. Um, in Kumamoto specifically, which is where we would probably direct you with these funds, um, they charge 5%, so right on the average. And they normally, um, they don't charge when a property is vacant, and then they charge a placement fee when they, uh, an advertising and placement fee when they place a new tenant. Mm -hmm. And that normally equals to one month of the rent. In some cases, we haven't had this happen in Kumamoto because, as I said, we usually get them populated very quickly in Kumamoto. But in other places, if it was a particularly tough time of the year, um, there's a lot of supply in the market for any reason because, um, I don't know, it's the end, it's the middle of the school year and it's near university or there's a lot of new developments in the area and people prefer newer buildings. So if for any reason the time of year is a bit rougher and there's more supply and we don't want to reduce the rent, which again is up to you, um, then we would offer them two or three months instead of the one month placement fee. And then that enables them to share the listing with other property managers and share the commissions as well. Um, or we might use that same amount to offer incentives to potential tenants. So like the first month of free rent, or we might offer the owner will participate in the move-in fees. The total cost to you would always be usually maximum two or three months. Uh, in normal cases where there is a uh, normal supply and demand dynamics, it'll be one month. Okay. And we charge an additional half a month on placement. So do these types of properties, I know mine's on the uh, lower end, do they usually charge key money at all that would go towards, you know, paying the property managers or anything for the initial placement of these? The key money, there's a bit of a mix-up um, when people talk about key money. I think what you might be referring to is uh, reikin, the thank you, thank you fee. The key money is actually money used to replace the lock and the key. So that, that, that always uh, has to be paid because the new tenant wants to have a new lock and key. They don't want the old tenant to come waltzing around and walking in there. Mm -hmm. So the key money is always charged, uh, in most cases, to the tenant, unless, again, we're going to be offering an incentive and say, okay, this time we're going to pay it on your behalf. Um, that usually equals to about 150, 200 bucks. And then the thank you fee um, depends on the location and the common practices in that area by that property manager. Um, we don't, personally, we don't think it's a very fair fee to charge, but in some areas it's just the norm. So we let the property managers um, do what they normally do there. If we see that um, they're advertising a thank you fee and uh, we're not getting a tenancy within a month or two, we'll just force them to drop it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in yeah. some cases, they charge it and they actually give it to the uh, landlord. Um, but again, we normally, if at all possible in a particular area, we just prefer not to charge it. It's not a very fair fee. Yeah, I was just curious. Mm. I knew that was just one of the things Japan has. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit weird, but um, look, in Tokyo, Osaka, it's very common. Um, in Fukuoka, I've seen it in some areas, some property managers. In Kumamoto, I don't think it was ever charged, especially since, um, again, the property manager that we deal with there works with a lot of uh, welfare-supported uh, sort of elderly uh, pensioners and so forth, and that, that would be really out of bounds to ask them for that sort of thing. So they in Kumamoto, we definitely don't charge it. Okay. Um, so the other question I had was on the title at, after I'm purchased the property. So how does that work exactly? Will I receive yep, a, so, uh, yeah, the ownership like documents or yep. how does that work? Yep, so that's all yours and it goes to you. It's all in Japanese, of course. So once we finalize the deal, the judicial scrivener, which is the equivalent of a property lawyer here, um, will register the ownership transfer with the Legal Affairs Bureau, who handle the um, property and title deed ownerships. And then two or three weeks later, they'll produce the new title deed and the new registration documents, and they'll send them to us uh, on your behalf. And then we'll scan and keep a copy of everything except the title deed. We don't scan the title deed for just security reasons. And everything will then be couriered to you in a, in a package uh, with a cover letter uh, issued by us. Okay. And then the, ma the ongoing management documents, so the, the rent statements and the building fee invoices and that sort of thing, they come to us, we pay them or, and we hold on to the income until you tell us to remit it to you. And the management documents that we get on a monthly basis, we keep here on file. Okay. If, if and when at some point you want to... Uh, you want to um, uh, stop our authority to act on your behalf. We are happy to post it all to you if you want, but that's a that's going to be a really big batch of documents. Mm -hmm. So, and I know because I can't set up a a bank account in Japan that you um, you hold all the um, the funds that come from the rent until I request it. So, how, what kind? How was that set up? And pay your expenses you have, as well. Yeah. So how was that set up? Do you have in your company's account, do you separate it at all? Or is it just all in one pool that you keep track of? It's a pool that we keep track of and we uh, produce an annual statement for each customer. Um, so you get a statement once a year telling you exactly what the balance is. If at any point in time the rates are attractive or you need money for any urgent reason, you let us know and we'll work out a rough estimate and remit to you based on that. And then if we overshoot, uh, we usually give a more conservative estimate so we wouldn't be overshooting. But if we happen to overshoot, then we can recoup it from your rental income as it comes in uh, later in the year. Yeah, I mean, primarily I'd like to keep as much here just as a, currency hedge right now i mean when you say here you mean here in japan yeah, yeah just to have diversity for the currency because i don't know in the u.s uh, i'm a little worried yeah i mean look the, the really the best way to handle it is obviously not to invest with money you're going to be needing back in a hurry so if you're going to be depending on those rental incomes to pay any i don't know mortgage or, or you're shopping back home that's really not a good idea 
Yeah. And then when you want to remit funds, ideally is when the, the rates are in your favor. So if the yen suddenly shoots up or the US dollar shoots down for any reason, that'll be a good time to tell us to transfer whatever we've got held there for you. Yeah. And that way yeah, you can well, actually profit on the exchange rates rather than lose on them. Yeah, that's right. Right now I was looking at me because the rates seem pretty good going into the yen for me. So yeah. So I and then going forward, I don't know what could happen, but just well, what what a lot of customers do is once they know that they want to invest in Japan, even if they don't have a particular property or a, a particular deadline. If the rates are attractive, once we're engaged, we're acting as your bank account in Japan. So whenever the rates are in your favor, like now or in a few months or whatever, and you know that you're going to be purchasing property here, just take advantage of the rates and remit an estimate uh, over to us and we'll keep it here in your account on your behalf. So again, you'll be able to capitalize on the higher rates. Okay. And then if and when the time comes to purchase and we find the property that you want to go ahead with, then we'll use those funds. Okay, that sounds good. So how do um, do you do why is that do you normally do just wire transfers? Is that um, we can, but we'd probably advise to sign up with a foreign exchange provider, which will give you much better rates and fees. Um, okay. The bank will, if you do a normal wire transfer from bank to bank and you let the bank handle the exchange, you'll be usually down about two three yens per dollar. So if you're talking about thirty thousand bucks. That can come up to, say, $1,000 extra that you're just paying the bank for nothing, really. Okay. So, so you... we, we, we've got a particular partnership with one of the foreign exchange providers, the one that we've been using, OFX. Uh, so that's one option. And if you sign up to our partner referral link, you'll get um, even better rates. But they're not the only ones. I mean, you can sign up with TransferWise. Um, I heard just yesterday, I heard from a customer about another one that they've been using. We like OFX because, um, I mean, the, the rates are pretty similar with whoever you use. They're always better than the banks, but they're not that different from each other. But the advantage for us with OFX is that we've got a corporate account manager that's dedicated to our account. So whenever there's a, a problem or we need a, we need a deal to be slightly delayed because we're waiting for funds to be released on one of the sides or so forth, they're always available and they're always very uh, complying with whatever we ask them to. Um, and if you sign up to our partner referral link, then we'll be able to uh, utilize that corporate account manager for your account as well. So it just makes things easier, but um, you, you can definitely compare rates. Once you sign up with them, you can also sign up with TransferWise and then try to uh, uh, book a deal without finalizing it. Just try to book a deal for the same amount at the same time and see who offers the better rates if you prefer. Okay. I mean, if yours... If you Yours sounds pretty good, so probably just easier to go with that. Um, we, we've been very happy. We've been with them from day one, and we have looked at potentially going to another one uh, a few times. We, we've never been convinced that we should leave them. We've been very happy with them. Okay. Uh, let's see. Do I have any other? Um, so the only other thing, I mean, I guess is, so there was three properties that I thought were in my uh, range that I was interested in. I mean, and there's not too much difference in them. I mean, the location and the price, uh, not too big of a difference. I mean, is there, like, how would you determine which you think is the be uh, better, I mean, 
just like the yield or I mean you look at how close to the stations we, we we look at that we also look at the age of the building but a lot of the information uh, we won't we won't really know to recommend which one to go with until we submit an offer and get due diligence on a uh, first one for example mm-hmm. and then depending on the information we, we get we'll be able to recommend whether to go with this one or to look into another one but just bear in mind that the samples that you get from us because this is the lower end of the market and they're very cheap and it is a very big and active market there's a very good chance that they'll be gone a few days from listing so what pretty forwarded to you is what we had on file at the time when you asked us to forward these to you these um, are very likely going to be gone by the time you actually sign up with us and we can submit offers on your behalf so I would okay. treat them more as a sample of what can be had. And then once we're uh, engaged and we've got the authority to act on your behalf and we had our fee estimate paid, which we need in advance for the first deal, mm-hmm. um, then we'll be able to uh, quickly get our foot in the door whenever something becomes listed that catches your eye. I mean, it could be that those are still available, but usually they'll be gone within less than a month at most. So by the time we sort out the engagement process, which will probably take at least another week, um, just bear in mind that these particular properties might be gone already. So just treat them as samples for now. Yeah, okay. And I guess the other thing that that kind of brings up is since they are 30 years old, is there any concern that the, um, the standards for the buildings, they may change and require major renovations or... Um, you know, I don't know. But the, tear, these are all tearing down a building or anything. But tearing down has never happened to us yet. We try not to buy anything old enough that would stand the danger of being torn, torn down. Um, renovations to new earthquake resistance standards can happen, but the latest one was in 1981, and there hasn't been any indication that the technology has changed that much. Um, so if they haven't changed in the last, uh, what's that, 40-something years, now, 40 years exactly now, um, unlikely to change in the near future. At least there hasn't been any talk or documentation of anything uh, significantly changing in that regard. But if and when they do change, then yes, I mean, they'll do some renovations as per the new code. But really, the new codes normally refer to building standards. So unless it's a brand new property being developed, there's not going to be a huge amount that they can do. Okay. All right, that's good. Um, With tearing down, I mean, the bigger danger, it's not really a danger. I mean, the the bigger effect that uh, age has on the properties is not necessarily in them being torn down or being designated for demolition. It's more a case of um, as they get older, maintenance uh, costs get higher and then the building fees have to be raised. So it just reduces your yield. Um, we haven't really had a property even under threat of being condemned. We have had some developers uh, come in as a property reaches 40 or so years. Developers try to come in and swoop and, and grab that building from the uh, co-owners. Um, and there's a, bigger, there's a bigger chance of that happening the smaller the building is because obviously if it's a huge monster with like 200 units, they have to compensate 200 owners. That makes it less cost efficient for them. And so the smaller the building is, uh, the bigger the chance that that might happen. And if that does happen, you'll probably be selling it at close to uh, cost. 
And then, I mean, you, you'll still be well in the green because you would have hopefully had five or six or 10 or 15 years of rental income before that happens. Yeah. Um, but that, so, that's, that's the worst thing that's happened to us as a building got older, nothing beyond that. So I don't, um, for some of these older buildings, how have you seen uh, the properties depreciate in value, if at all, really? I mean, in Kumamoto, they, in Kumamoto, older buildings do tend to depreciate in value because land prices haven't gone up in Kumamoto. And they've gone up slightly so, since we've been in business, but uh, nowhere near what the uh, depreciation of the actual structure is. Um, but the thing is, with these, these properties are, in Japan, there's a very clear line between investment properties and properties that would be attractive for owners-occupiers. And the, the, the lower the budget, the more clear that line is. So the properties that you're looking at would never be purchased for anything but investment purposes, meaning the people who buy them would never want to live in them and the people who live in them would never be able to afford to buy them kind of thing. And so those properties are priced primarily on the yield that they generate um, as opposed to market dynamics. So okay. if you're looking at a family-sized nice property in a, in a good location, for example, then you know, whatever the market offers at that point in time would be comparable. But if you're looking at an investment property like these, um, if the yield drops from 7 to 5%, then the purchase price will drop as well because the investors will want to get it back up to 7%. And that's really all that's going to be happening. Kumamoto specifically has been a little bit shielded from that because, again, if we place government-supported tenants, they've got a certain rental, um, uh, rental allowance that they get from the local uh, government department handling their cases. So the rents there don't tend to drop like they might be in other cities. So it's really just a matter of whether building fees have gone up since you purchased or not. The more building fees have gone up, the more likely you're going to be selling at a, at a slightly lower price. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, if I hold this long-term, I'd rather, I mean, I'm doing this rather than put into, like, you know, a bank account and leave it there. So if I can at least, if, if I eventually sell it, get, you know, a decent, you know, if it depreciates a little, that's fine. But I don't want, you know, a huge loss in the value of the property. We haven't had, we've had some customers, I mean, most of our customers are buy and hold and they tend to be in it for the long term. But as a property approaches 40 years of age, it's probably a good idea to think about selling it. And when we've done that in Kumamoto specifically, there haven't been huge gains or huge losses. Most of them were sold at pretty close to what they've been purchased for. And then again, whoever has been holding them longer has had more profit from them in the interim. If somebody sold them after five years, they would have made a little bit less on rental income. If you sold them after 10 years, you would have made a little bit more. And the sale price will be very similar to what you purchased. We've had maybe $2,000 less than what it was purchased for at most. Okay, yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, like I, the, only, uh, like the plan possibly would be as you know, time goes by, maybe purchase another one if all goes well, and then maybe in the future sell some of them or sell them to buy maybe a larger building. Yep. That's but usually most of our customers. But that's just, you know, have to wait and see. So. Yep. But, um, yeah, that, I think that's all the questions I have. Um so I mean, 
pretty interested. So, I mean, if we could get the process started so that we can start um, looking and then possibly put in some offers, that'd be cool. Yep. So what I'll do is I'll send you the two engagement forms that we'll need signed and notarized um, to represent you here in Japan. And then the other thing would be our um, invoice. So at the budget that you're looking at, um, it's normally 5% of the uh, purchase price. Uh, because you're looking at um, properties that are under 5 million yen, that's going to be our minimum charge, which is based on 5% of 5 million yen, so 250,000 plus tax, so 275,000 Japanese yen. That's about 2.5 K US. And we need that paid in advance, and then we can start acting on your behalf. But even while we're waiting for that, we can start referring potentials um, as they become available and so forth. Okay. We just can't start communicating with agents and sellers before we're properly engaged. Yep. And so all we'll be able to do is just look at sample listings for now. And also, I'll just let you know that um, we're in the midst of uh, tax season now, so there's going to be a bit of a delay on our end uh, before we can provide constant uh, flow of properties and information and so forth. So um, we'll probably be a lot more active uh, after the middle of uh, April. Okay, sounds good. All right, so I'll send those your way, and Pretty will continue to send anything that suits your budget in the meantime. All right, sounds good. All right. Thank you very much, Ziv. Pleasure. So there you go. Yes, it's definitely possible to purchase a fully owned freehold property in Japan for as little as 20 or 30,000 US dollars. And that's in various cities around the country. We talk a lot about Kumamoto in this particular conversation, but there are other similar satellite cities or prefectural capitals all around the country with stable or growing population and very similar profiles to that city where it is definitely possible. But you do need to be aware of what it is that you can get for this sort of budget, both on the property profile front and also as a derivative of that, you need to be aware of what your average tenant would look like with these cheaper properties, just so you're prepared and you know what to expect throughout the investment's life cycle. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. So that's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, switch to a more permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or branch office of a foreign company, and you have any business or visa-related inquiry, you need help to apply for any of those, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. That's all one word, .com. And he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, do both, or just provide you with the best advice and consultation related to these topics before you begin. And he's already done that for many, many, many of our listeners. So feel free, reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com, and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. Leave us a short rating, a review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, wherever you're turning in from, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.